0: This morning. So without further ado, uh, Steven Mansfield. Mansfield Thank you, man. Thank you. I, th- I think um, that uh, when I go to heaven, I want him to introduce me to God. Don't you think that that's the way that ought to go? Hey, guys, good to see you this morning. I'm so proud of you being here on a Saturday morning. I know you've all got other places to be, but we'll have a good time here. And, um, you know, I talk fast. My southern cousins say I talk fast like a Yankee on drugs. Um, and I'm not on drugs this morning, but I do have to leave at 1130. I'm sorry. So I'm going to dive right in and get right to it and maybe try to leave some time for some Q&A. That'll be fun. Good to see you guys this morning. Proud of you. I'm a member of Every Nation, too. Um, I go to Brad Fuller's Church in uh, in Chantilly, Virginia. Uh, they, I'm on staff. About 5% they call me the white spot. So uh, that's, that, that's how that goes. You can tell they abuse me. Anyway, let me start off by telling you a story this morning. Um, Years ago, I was going in and out of the Middle East quite a bit, and I uh, ended up on a certain trip. We, we, we were working with the Kurds, as I still do, and uh, and I ended up getting stuck in Damascus. Um, my papers got messed up, and so where normally we went into Damascus and went on to... Uh, further on into Iraq, I got stuck. And I ended up getting stuck in the Damascus Sheraton eating bad hamburgers for day after day, arguing with the doorman about whether anything with a round ball with black spots on it should be called football. I was telling him that was not football, that he was on the wrong sport. But anyway, uh, so I spent d- days and days there. And after a while, uh, a Syrian parliamentarian guy in the, par- in the, in the basically their Congress uh, decided to have a little party for me. He was feeling bad for me. I'd been there for two weeks waiting to get through. And so I, uh, he did a sweet thing. He had a bunch of other parliamentarians together. We got on the roof of a, of a hotel in Damascus. And... Um, and we, so we had this, this this fun little party with it, lovely food and beautiful night in Damascus. The problem was he decided he did not decide to make sure that anybody could speak English. So uh, so I'm up on the roof with a bunch of guys. You know some of them Syrian parliamentarians, some of their bodyguards, uh, a guy from the desert with a keffa, the cloth headdress thing. And uh, and every so often they'd go welcome. You know it was all the English they knew. You know they'd go welcome and hug me, and that was great. And it would happen again in a few minutes. Um, After a while, one of the guys uh, turned to me with a little bit more English, and he said, Stephen, do you have a son? I said, I do. What is his name? I said, his name is Jonathan. And like he was announcing the second coming, he stood back and said, then you have a new name. And I didn't understand what was going on. So we got a waiter to come tell us what the deal was, um, who spoke a little bit more English. Apparently, in Arab culture, Um, when a man has a son, it's such an honorary thing for him that they give him a new honorary name. And it's Abu, which means father of, and then a shortened version of uh, of the son's name. Well, my son's name was Jonathan. So they said, your name is Abu John. When this was announced, that rooftop erupted. Somebody did that Arab thing where they clapped their hands and food began to come out. We began to eat cashews big as your toe, and you know, just mountains of limbs were being slaughtered downstairs. It was awesome because they were celebrating Abu Jan. And it might have been a little bit of a setup, but for the next four hours, we did. Arab partying. I mean, we ate. They would come up and go, Abu And they would hug me again. I think I was had more physical contact with men than I've had in my entire life that night. Um, and, uh, and it was it was wonderful. In fact, they actually broke out in dancing at one point. If you've ever done Arab dancing, you've seen it before. But the guys I was dancing with had Uzis. And so it went something like this. You know, and, when the dude you're dancing with has an Uzi, he leads. So this went on, this went on for hours. Okay. Finally, at about three or four in the morning, they took me back to my hotel, hugged me, backslapped slapped me out the car, sent me back to my hotel. And I sat there for a while before I fell asleep, got up the next day and I, something was different. Something had changed. I couldn't quite figure out what it was. Uh, but I knew something good and positive and sweet had happened, but I couldn't, couldn't quite figure out what it was. And finally, after thinking about it for a bunch of days, I realized what it was. it was. This was the first time in my entire life that anyone had ever welcomed me to or celebrated a season of manhood, right? Normal Protestant upbringing. Father was a military officer. I went to high school. People were thrilled, gave me gifts, took me out to dinner. Nobody talked to me about what what manhood meant. Went to college, graduated. Nobody ever sat me down and said, here's what it means to be a man in college. You understand what I'm saying? Just normal, normal life. I'm not Jewish, so there was no bar mitzvah. You you understand what I mean. Some of our our brothers and sisters in other religions have got got some rituals that they do, but we don't have anything like that. Um, I got married. Awesome. The night before I got married, my future father-in-law said, I want to give you some wisdom. And here's exactly what he said. This is the truth before God. Women don't mix. That was all he said. I still don't know what it means, okay? I don't know what it means. I had children. Children come along. You know how that goes? It's sweet. It's wonderful. They take the kid out of the pit stop. They put him in your arms. You hold him for a minute. Then the mother-in-law mafia moves in, takes over. You're living in a hut in the back of the house. It was sweet. Nobody talked to me about being a man. You follow what I'm saying? I had a wonderful life. I didn't have any of the great disasters. You know, my parents loved me. and we. Not once in my whole life had anyone, any group of men, anybody, anywhere, sat me down and talked to me about the next phase of life or initiated me into the next phase of life as a man. And here I was on the rooftop of a hotel. In, I'm sure half of these people were terrorists, according to our State Department. You know what I'm saying? I'm just to be honest. How, you know, this is years ago, but how many people in the Syrian parliament are not going to be listed as, as terrorists by our State Department? And here they are celebrating me, and it changes me. And I began to realize that even though I'd had a good life, uh, normal, all-American, middle-class life, you know, uh, that I had not ever had affirmation, training, impacting, impartation from a team of men in my whole life. And it began to change me. It began to make me look at my society when I came back. It began to make me look at Scripture slightly differently. Um, I got to tell you that I began to read some Scriptures differently, and one of them is this one. Uh, This is when David's about to die, and in this scripture, he's turning to his son Solomon, and he says, I'm about to go the way, uh, the way of all the earth, so be strong and act like a man. Well, this is the NIV, uh, the New International Version. I like the way it is in the King James Version, because it actually says, show yourself a man. Well, why, why is it different? Why, 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 why do I like this verse? Throughout the Bible, there are many, many times when the word male is used, but the, or, or men in the sense of male. There were 10,000 men, the men went and did this, men marched off. It just means males. But sometimes in the Bible, the word that's used means the characteristics of a man, the, the lore of a man, the ways of a man, the ways of a noble man, the way a good man behaves. This is one of them. David didn't turn to his son and said, be a male. That would have been stupid. Solomon was in his 20s. He'd been a male for two decades. What he's saying is go and show. That's why I like this translation from the King James. Go and show yourself a man. Go and show, go display, go live out what it means to be a good and a noble and a righteous man. I like that it happened some other places uh, in, the New Te- in the Old Testament. Job, I love the book of Job. Most people don't. You know, Job's life gets messed up in the first chapter and then we spend 40 chapters listening to his idiot friends try to tell him why it happened, right? You guys have read Job. At the end, God shows up with an attitude right? And basically in the Hebrew, he says, excuse me, did you teach the horse how to run? And here's what, here's what it says in the Hebrew, then shut up. Uh, that's, what it, that's the way we should translate it. We're just too polite to translate it that way. Did you teach the snake how to, how to wind on the rock? And did you tell the, the waves how far to come up on the shore? Then shut up. And then he turns to Job and he says, brace yourself, prepare yourself to defend yourself like a man. Doesn't mean male. It means in the ways and the characteristics and the nobility of a man. And what I began to realize was that I had never really had anyone teach me that lore, that way of being a man, that the characteristics of manhood. I grew up in generic military chapels. My father is a war hero. He's dead now, but decorated war hero. He was a man's man, but he couldn't have taught me how to be a man. He just didn't have the ability to communicate with his son. We, we know what I'm talking about. He was a good man, but you know I, he may have told me he loved me maybe once or twice in my life. He just wasn't going to come home and go, I love you, son. You know, It was more like to mow the yard, and what's wrong with you? You know, like, I mean, you guys, you know what I'm talking about. But I mean, he's buried at Arlington. I mean, he's he's a he's a real real hero, and you know, he protected our freedom. He just didn't know how to talk to his son. So, what I'm aware of is that something's going on in our society that's a result of this lore of this of this ability to 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 this knowledge of what it means to be a man from a godly biblical perspective is absent in our society. We're not passing it down in the next generation. I'm so proud of you being here today, so we can talk about it a bit. Um, but, but you know what's going on in our society. I mean, we are hurting. Young men are in trouble. I'll talk about it in detail in a, in a little bit. Um, and I do a lot on university campuses and debate, lecture, and stuff like that. So I'm very aware of what's happening on the university campuses when it comes to manhood. And probably you are too. Here are some of the books that are hot books on the campuses when it comes to men. Okay, see if these, these titles don't tick you off a little bit. The End of Men and the Rise of Women. By the way, these are serious books by serious scholars put out by serious publishers. If you're in the behavioral sciences, you know about the Stanford Prison Experiment. Remember, some of you will know about that from years and years ago, um, where, where this, this uh, psychologist, Zimbardo, did a fake prison experiment at, at Stanford, and it, it showed some things that people still talk about. He wrote this book and did a TED Talk with it, The Demise of Guys. He's serious. This book by one of the great psychologists of our age is called Is There Anything Good About Men? These are, ser- these are the serious books that they're, that they're using on campus. And then here's one called Manning Up, How the Rise of Women Has has Turned Men Into Little Boys. I mean, that's the perspective in our society, okay? And um, I put all that in a different way. When I talk about it on the campus, I I I came up with this phrase. I talk about the guerrilla theory of men because here's what's prevailing in our society. The guerrilla theory of men is basically that we needed men when we were, you know, taming the frontier, uh, when we were, um, you know, defeating the natives. By the way, I am Native American. We'll talk about some land you owe me later, okay? Um, <laughs> some of you are like, well, excuse me, you don't know my people's story. But anyway, we'll come back to that. Um, but uh, the guerrilla theory of men is the idea that we needed men when we were raising the steel and when we were taming the frontier and we were building the cities and laying on the railroad tracks and all that kind of stuff. But in an information society... Men are, according to this theory, they don't have the aptitude for it. We don't have the ability to live in an information society. So men are basically like gorillas sitting in the corner of their cage, scratching themselves, eating a banana, and trying to figure out what went wrong. And so that's kind of a humorous, goofy, sarcastic way of talking about where men are these days because the reality is men are in decline by every measurable standard. Uh, in, in America today. Men's life expectancy is decreasing. Men's uh, academic performance is decreasing. Uh, men's earnings are decreasing, etc. And let me just stop right here and say something that, that I need to say quickly um, so that we don't have any confusion. I do not believe that the problem for men is that women are rising. I am grateful for everything women are accomplishing. Thank God. I have a daughter. I want her to be, she's, she's 27 years old. I want her to be president, the Pope the CEO, the rock star. You follow what I'm saying? Everything she can achieve, I want her to achieve. It's not like there's one pie that's only one size and we're all fighting for pieces of it. It's not a tug of war. Uh, But but I'll tell you that women are rising and men are declining. And it's not because women are rising that men are declining. Men are in decline because they've lost a sense of who they are and what they were made for. That's what's going on. So so what I want to talk to you about here for just a moment are, are the people who are suffering the most because of this. Uh, In our society, uh, because men don't know who they are, because men don't have a noble culture, because men don't know how to initiate boys and and pass on the noble lore of being a man to the next generation, boys are in crisis. Let me risk boring you just for a minute with a few stats about boys because I really want you to keep your eyes on the boys in your life. Let me just tell you some stats that'll, that'll surprise you here. By the eighth grade, only t- only 20% of boys in America are proficient in writing, and only 24% are proficient in reading. Look at that stat. Now, I'm going to give you academic stats, but this has to do with how boys are doing in school and how, how well-adjusted they are in school, okay? Um, SAT scores for boys are the worst they've been in 40 years. Why? Because men aren't in their lives. Half of all young boys in our America today don't have fathers in the homes. And a bunch of those that do have fathers in the homes don't have engaged fathers. You know what I'm talking about. And so that, this, is, this, is, this is becoming an unbelievable crisis. Um, in our society, uh, boys are 30% more likely than girls to drop out of both high school and college. We, we used to talk about dropout rates back in the 50s, but we expected everybody to finish school. And now people are dropping out left and right, and it's mainly boys. This is my tech team showing off at how they can dissolve a, a video here. Um, uh, other stats that are, that are absolutely essential for us. Um, consider, consider this, for example, and I celebrate most of these stats. Women are will earn 2000, by 2016, and that's, those are the most recent stats we have. Uh, 60% of bachelor's degrees, 63% of master's degrees, and 50% 54% of all doctorates. I'm thrilled for every degree every woman's getting. Don't misunderstand, but those are percentages, which means that the male percentage is dropping. Not because women are getting degrees, but because men aren't pursuing those advanced degrees. Because men are in turmoil. Because they don't know who they are. Because they don't know what they're meant to accomplish. These are sad statistics. And let's let's break into some of the ones that are uh, maybe a little bit more disturbing. Boys comprise two-thirds of students in special education programs. Two-thirds of the students in special education programs. And that's not for physical deformities. That's because of behavioral issues. Okay? Pretty amazing. Now, here's the stuff that begins to hit even uh, more firmly, and then I'm going to start merging out of stats just a little bit. The average boy sees his first pornographic image at the age of 11 in our generation. We tend to give kids that age cell phones, and once they have a smartphone, they can access the nastiest porn that's ever existed in the world. I have held little boys, who stumbled onto slasher films. Now, I'm not going to get too graphic here. A slasher film is porn where a woman actually dies on the screen. Literally, physically, a human being has died in the filming of that. And this boy couldn't handle it, but he stumbled onto it while looking for other porn on his cell phone. Um, at the age of 11, the average boy watches two hours of porn every week. Two hours of porn every week. And one in three boys is now considered every porn user. And the problem is, of course, that... The reason that this is happening is not just, of course, that it's available, but also there aren't men in their lives to talk to these boys about what noble manhood is, about how a man orients to a woman, about what porn can do in rewiring the brain and messing with your life. So these are all really, really important things. Uh, boys are four to five more times, like more times more likely than girls to be labeled as having an attention, attention deficit disorder. Now, uh, I want to tell you that I, I, I'll talk to you in just a minute about the fact that I disagree um, with, with some of these definitions. And uh, let me just say quickly, if you, need, if you need medication for behavioral issues, get it. That's, we're not anti-medicine here. You guys, you guys know that. At the same time, I want all of you to read this article. Please read this article, okay? You can take a picture of the screen or write it down or write it on your friend's arm or whatever you want to do. Um, the drugging of the American boy. The Drugging of the American Boy, by Ryan Augustino, March 2014. It's an Esquire magazine, not a Christian magazine. And he makes the point, he's a psychologist, and he makes the point that uh, boys, there's actually kind of a war on boys today, that most educators uh, in, in elementary and high school, most people who deal with boys in the early age, they don't know what to do with boys uh, because we all know that adolescence is a form of mental illness, right? Every man in here lost his stinking mind when he went into adolescence, right? Let me tell you a story real quick. My, my son, uh, when he was 12 years old decided that he would test his manhood. And so he decided, uh, along the busiest road in Nashville, Tennessee to lay down in the road at night and see how close he would let cars come to him before he jumped up and ran to the curb. Okay. So I won't tell you the whole story, but I had a a weightlifting partner whose name was Desmond, and he was basically head of the SWAT team in Nashville, and he found him, thank God, friend of mine who'd been in my home, great big African-American guy. He came in holding Jonathan by the scruff of the neck, and he said, sir, is this your son? And he winked at me, you know, because Jonathan didn't know that I knew this, this, this policeman. I said, it is. He goes, sir, do you let him lay on the road at night? I looked at Desmond like, are you an idiot? I mean, of course I didn't. I mean, anyway, so Desmond arrested Jonathan, put him in the back of the car and kept the lights going and the siren going. Can you imagine what that was like just to freak him out a little bit? And, um, and I got to tell you, I finally negotiated with Desmond to get Jonathan back in the headlights of the car so Jonathan would see us doing it. And I took him home. His mother flipped out. His grandmother flipped out. They wanted to put him in a military school. They wanted to put a straitjacket on him. They wanted, I mean, you know, you wanted to drug him. You can imagine they lost their mind. And don't misunderstand. I disciplined Jonathan. I took away everything he loved. I threatened him with his life. You know what I'm talking about. But... But at the same time once I got him to once I got him in his room and I went to my office I sat down and laughed my head off because I know what that is right you guys know what that is at about the age of 12 or 13 let me be a little crass a kid wants to know if he's got a set he wants to know if he's a man that's what Jonathan was doing he was testing himself and because I was there in his life I knew that and so I began to spend more time with Jonathan and we, we began to play not just little boy football but big boy pick up football where your eyeballs lay it on your cheek when the whole thing is over you know and we began to ha- and, and he and he just needed more manhood in his life but I was there to narrate it. I was there to speak to it. What's going on in our society is that we've got boys who are troubled. We got boys who are misbehaving in school and no one's there to narrate what boyhood is. All of you have a story uh, of something crazy you did when you were in your early teen years because we all lose our mind, right? I mean, come on, male adolescence is a form of mental illness, right? So you all did something nuts. You blew up the cat, you jumped off the roof, you stole the neighbor's motorcycle and went for a ride, whatever, you know, you did something nuts, right? What's going on is because our society doesn't know about, uh, doesn't understand boyhood because men aren't there to narrate it. They're drugging boys. And that is causing un- unbelievable trouble, unbelievable trouble. In fact, let me tell you about something that's really disturbing. And what I do with men, I've got a couple of MDs who are, uh, who, who could advise me. One of them's a surgeon. And one of the rising surgeries for young boys, one of the rapidly rising surgery for young boys is a surgery called gynecomastia. And I'm not trying to be unclean this morning. It's basically breast removal from young boys who have a combination of sedentary lifestyles. They play video games a lot, they eat a lot of junk food, and often prescription drugs are part of it. It works in their body in a way that actually produces breast matter. Here's a graphic that's going to disturb you. It's from the Mayo Clinic. You see normal, normal chest, chest matter on a male left, on the right, this is, this is what uh, is happening with a lot of young boys because their bodies are literally, this is almost like a prophetic statement, their bodies are literally becoming female bodies in a sense. Obesity, something about video games and the way it biochemically impacts the body, um, like I said, prescription drugs, junk food, et cetera. And I've, my surgeon friends, who's on my board, Um, literally has removed what he said would be the perfect American breast from a 14-year-old boy who's traumatized by it. Think about that. I see that as a real symbol of what's happening in our society. I'll get that off of there. Some of you are squirming. I can tell. I don't want to do that. So let me break out two Greek words from the New Testament for you that I think really capture what's going on in our society, that I think really uh, causes us to to understand a little bit of what's going on. I was reading um, the Bible in the King James, not too long, ago, I was reading First 1 Corinthians 169. 9. I'm sorry, six nine. And, uh, and in the King James there, uh, it says this: "Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that's the word I'm focused on, effeminate. I did really pricked in my brain that time I was reading it, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Well, I was just reading the verse that day in the King James, and I suddenly stuck on that word effeminate. And I was reading it the way we would read the word effeminate today. It kind of bugged me for a moment. I had a little argument with God. I, I live in D.C. and Nashville. My wife's in the music industry. So I have lots of male friends who are good, godly men, but they've got long hair and rather slight bodies. They're not real muscular like a lot of you guys. They're kind of, from the back, you might even think they're women. They're musicians. You know, they aren't real muscular guys. And um, so I thought, well, no, Lord, you're not, you're not saying effeminate looking people aren't going to heaven, right? It's, I mean, there's, there's got to be some story here to this, right? Because um, that would be bad. And so I broke out the Greek in in that verse, and here's what it says. The Greek word there for effeminate is malikos. We get our word malleable from it. And here's what it means To be soft and perverse as a result of luxurious living. To be soft to the point of perversion as a result of luxurious living. Now, most of you guys probably wouldn't walk around saying that I'm living a luxurious life, but we're all living luxurious lives. All of you guys have cars, you got a computer in your. Pocket basically that used to fill it would have filled a entire room back in the 1950s. None of us are missing a meal, especially me. Um, you know we're, we're we're fine. We got homes. We're not working about police kicking in our doors today. You know what I'm saying? We're we're, we're living a pretty luxurious life, certainly by the standard of history. And so, what does this mean to be to be soft to the point of perversion because of luxurious living? That is definitely what's happening today amongst men in our society. We have a very perverse. Generation. I'm sorry to say, I know know I'm not condemning you guys. You guys are here. You guys are fighting against that stuff. You guys are living out different values. But here God gives us the internet. What are the two main things that we do with it? Porn and games. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, it's incredible. So there's no question we've got this kind of thing happening. But there's another verse that I really like. Deuteronomy 20 and verse 8. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 20, God is giving instructions to the commanders of the army of Israel. And, he says, and he's saying basically, here's what you tell the army before you go out into the battle. And, he, and he, this is just a small section of what those words are. When you go to war, the officer shall say, is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. Faint-hearted, that's not a word we use very much. What does that mean? Well, the word faint-hearted, when you bring it into the Greek, and what it means is small-souled, dim a vision on the inside, no sense of who you are on the inside, no inner passion, no inner fire, don't know who you are, okay? That's what that word means. And remember that, that God said to the commanders, send that person home because he'll dishearten everybody else. You wanted the guy who was dim of vision, small of soul, you know, without passion, without zeal, without vision. You wanted him to go home because that was contagious. You didn't want everybody having to deal with that. And so, you know, these two words, I think that the, the soft to the point of perversion and small soul def- defines what most men are. And I know you're getting fed differently here. and I know you're getting challenged differently here, but I, but, but I want us to be able to reach other men. I want us to be able to live these values out. I want you to be able to live them to the glory of God. And so, you know, where is the, where is the help going to come from? Where's the change? What's the solution to all of this? Well, if you guys are righteous men, if you are uh, anointed, called, godly men, then you know that every king, truth of the kingdom of God appears in some episode of the Andy Griffith show. Am I? Are, can I get an amen on that? Let's see, if, let's see if they don't have some wisdom for us here. Need the, need the volume. I can back it up if we need to. We lost our sound. Just a minute. Start over. We had it. We had it beforehand. I'm sorry? Okay. I've r- I've restarted it. I can I can act it out. Pardon? Yeah, it says, it says muted on the screen, No, it's up. See? What? See, that's the problem when you're talking to too many people who know what they're doing better than I do. So is, it, is the volume good? I don't know what to, I don't know what causes that.
1: Okay, so how's this connected?
0: Let's not take time with it, that's cool. Thank you for trying to help me. That's fine. So here's what happens. So. Um, so Barney, you, you can come up and work on it if you want to while I'm talking. But I'll just go ahead and describe this one. So Barney and Goober are in town. Andy, the sheriff, is gone, okay? And so they, they, they're walking the streets. They're all large and tall. You know how you know, Barney is. You know, he's always, I'm so awesome. And, uh, and they, they're walking around, and they get up on this building, and suddenly they look down, and they, they see bank robbers. And they go, oh, my God, they're the bank robbers. And at that moment, Goober turns to Barney and says, we need to call the police, you know? And we get it? Hey, just you touching it. Just you touching this. Okay, now I don't have to act it out in my bad acting. Ready? <laughs> So, so the, what's the point? The point is, you know, a lot of people today talk about waiting for Superman. A lot of people today talking about waiting for, especially in Christian context, waiting for the super conference, waiting for the right book, waiting for the right video series. And I got to tell you, as much as I write and speak and travel and do videos and all that kind of stuff, that's not where the fix is coming from. We are the police. Look around. You want to know who's going to fix this thing? It's the guys in this room. We are the police. You might be helped by somebody like me coming from the outside. You might be helped by your pastors and so on. But fundamentally, it's going to come about as we make a difference. We're going to have to build a network, a body of noble manhood. We're going to have to initiate the boys and take responsibility for them. Uh, We're going to have to step in. We are the police. So the wisdom of the Andy Griffith Show must prevail in this room, okay? Now... As I began to come back from Syria and I began to really think through these things, obviously there were other people who were writing about men's things and doing conferences and there was promise keepers and all that. But I began to think, how can I create an on-ramp for men towards noble and great manhood? I call it great manhood. Uh, How can I simplify it? It's not everything you need to know, but what's the way I can just get guys moving in the right direction? So I came up with four maxims, four truths that I want to talk with you about here just in the next few minutes, and then we'll take some Q&A. Um, they're in this book, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men that you see advertised here. I didn't bring any, so I'm not trying to sell books. But I, I want to talk about the four manly maxims, just four of them. And let me break these out because I think they're important. And there are a few more videos in there, so we might be ready for the sound. Uh, thank you. And the number, one, the number one is going to sound so simple. Manly men, in the, in the book we're having fun, so we talk about manly men and manly maxims and all that. But manly men do manly things. Let me give you some biases of mine this morning, some, some things that I believe strongly. And one of those is that when we get men in a room and we try to get men to become noble men and good men, we often engage in a process of emotions management. We want men to do things differently. We want them to feel differently about their wives. want you to feel differently about being a man. want you to feel differently about your children. And I believe in feelings, but for men, normally feelings follow deeds. Deeds, action comes first. Okay. We are visceral animals doing things doing the right things comes first. I'm not trying to create a new kind of legalism. I'm not just trying to give you lists, but my goal is to get men focused on the doing. Okay. Because often in scripture, sometimes God does miraculous things in scripture and he just does them. And then a person's changed and they start behaving differently. But sometimes the deed comes first and God meets them in the doing and changes them afterwards. Let me give you some examples. Um, there's this, there are a couple of great stories that I love. Luke seventeen eleven and verse 14, Jesus is walking along and he sees some lepers. You've read the scripture before. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him and they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus master have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priest. Stop right there. Don't read any further. The last person these lepers wanted to see was the priest. The priest was the one who had judged them to have leprosy. The priest was the one who'd sent them out into, the, uh, into, the, in, into a colonies, you know, basically leprous colonies. You've seen that in movies like Ben-Hur and things like that. Um, the priest was the one who had said, you're now going to have to leave your wife, leave your husband, leave your children. You'll have to ring a bell for the rest of your life and shout unclean, unclean when anybody approaches. You understand what I'm saying. It was the priest who had condemned them. So here's, so they come to Jesus, the healer, and, Je- and, 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 and Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. Like the worst thing they could ever have heard. But, now we hear me, the, and as they went and obeyed this difficult thing he told them to do, that's where Jesus met them and they were healed. But they weren't healed until they did. They had to act first. They had to do deeds first. And I think that's how you approach men. There's another story I love, kind of a military story, uh, 2 Kings 5.14. Uh, there's a, a guy I really like named Naaman the Syrian. And uh, he's, he's, got, he's found he's contracted leprosy too. So he goes to the prophet and the prophet tells him uh, to dip himself in the Jordan seven times. Well, Naaman's like the Norman Schwarzkopf, you know, Colin Powell of his day. He's not wanting to dip himself in the water. That's what servant girls do. He's too proud. He refuses to do it. But he's got a Jewish servant girl and eventually she, she convinces him to go back to the prophet. And so he go, if the Bible says that he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God told him to do. And his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. Why? He wasn't healed until he started doing and so my goal with men is to get them doing the right things. I'll tell you more about what they should be doing, but getting them doing the right things. I'm not trying to manage your emotions. I think your emotions will follow your deeds. I want you to do. Men are doers. Men need to do things. Sitting around, just staring at each other. You want to, you want to bore a bunch of men. Put them in a, a room, in a circle, and say, look at each other and ask each other, how are you fe- how are you feeling today, Ted? That just makes me want to kill somebody. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's just, come on, you know what I'm talking about. We're men, right? We want to do things. So uh, let me show you a video that's not about spiritual things, but about natural things from a friend of mine in D.C. He's this great guy. By the way, he's Chancellor of the University of Texas. So I'm sure you guys know who he is. But um, Admiral McRaven uh, is a phenomenal warrior, and he gave this speech at UT, and um, it's all about doing of a certain kind and how doing resets your life a little bit. Just listen just for a second.
1: Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough battle-hardened SEALs. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed.
0: Now, he's having fun with this idea like I do, but the fact is that it's the doing we want to get to. Now, the question becomes, what is the doing? What do we want men to do? First principle, of course, is manly men do manly things. But the second principle is manly men tend their field. This is important. Uh, the language comes from the New Testament in the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10:13. Uh, you guys have read this thing before. Paul says uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, He said, "We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God Himself has assigned to us—a sphere that also includes you." Even though I love the New International Version, I think they've got the wrong word here with "sphere," because the word that's used there in Greek is "metron." It means a measured space. We get our word "meter" from it, "metron." And so, what it's really talking about is a measured field—volleyball court or you know that kind of thing—a measured space. What Paul basically is saying here is God has assigned me a measured field, a certain a body of things that I'm to take responsibility for. And I'm not going to boast beyond those things. Those are the things I'm about. Those are the things I'm tending. And you Corinthians are in that field. That's what he's saying. Well, here's my, here's what I believe and It's one of the most important things I know about manhood. Every man for every season of his life, and I don't mean adolescence and middle age, I'm just talking about every season of his life as, as measured by the things he does every man has a field assigned to him. And his job more than anything else is to tend that field and make sure everything in that field flourishes. He takes responsibility. The great sin of men in history has been the sin we see of Adam in the, new, in the, in the book of Genesis. You remember when Adam and Eve were living at a house, basically, and the devil shows up and tempts Eve. And what does the Bible say? While Eve's being tempted, Adam's standing right there but he said nothing. He didn't bring any correction. In fact, I think the game was on and he's going, oh yeah, honey, I'll be there in a minute. Ooh, 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 you know, and he's watching the game. He's distracted while Eve's being tempted by the devil. Men not tending their field, men not taking responsibility. And I want you to start thinking about your life this way. For every season of your life, you have a field that is assigned to you. Now, it's not a field of drudgery and duty only. It includes you taking care of yourself and getting workouts in and having some fun with your buddies and your band of brothers. I'll talk about in just a minute. But it also includes whatever else God's given you to do. And it changes from season to season just because God has different priorities for you. You have different priorities. Got a 16-year-old, maybe his obligation is half of a bedroom and a bunk bed and some textbooks and his job at Pizza Hut. Uh, you know, and, and serving at church and honoring his parents and, 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 you know, learning how to date women honorably. That's, that's his field. That's the, that's the field he's got to learn to master, take care of himself, maybe do his sports. Guy, in his, The guy who's 25, newly married, about to buy a new house or something, uh, his field's different. You know, he's acquired a mother in law he's got to take care of, maybe who's, who's alone. And he's got a wife he's got to love well. He's got to tend that house. He's got to make sure that she flourishes and coaches her and loves her and prays for her and helps her. And, and, uh, and, h- and maybe he's got some c- civic responsibilities or maybe he's committed to help boys in the community. You see what I'm saying? He senses that this is what he's meant to be about right now. That's his field. Your field is the total body of responsibilities, duties, and privileges that God gives you for any season of your life. And when we talk about doing uh, manly men do manly things, you tend your field. I mean, what's our image of the irresponsible man? The irresponsible man sitting in his in his recliner in his stinky sweats on a Saturday afternoon, screaming for somebody else to bring him the, uh, another sandwich and a beer before the second half starts, right? I mean, that's our image of a man. The house is falling down. The wife is bitter and hurt. The kids are untended. The son's upstairs in his room doing stuff secretly nobody knows about. The daughter's about ready to get on the back of a motorcycle with Spike or whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> And what's this guy doing? All he cares about the second half and his beer. Uh, he hasn't mowed anything, he hasn't fixed anything, he hasn't loved anybody, he hasn't spoken words in anybody's life. He hasn't prayed for anybody, he hasn't challenged anybody. He hasn't driven off spike. He hasn't taken his wife out for a walk. She's gained 40 pounds. He hasn't asked her what's hurting her or how he can serve her. You follow what I'm saying. So he's not tending his field. Everything in his field should flourish, and it's his responsibility to make sure it happens. It's not a big old loss list of duties. It's a privilege. I hang over that field. I love that field. By the way, that's how you get authority. That's how you gain authority. You know, men have been real big on having authority over women when it comes to Bible and the, and the history of the church. But you get authority by tending your field. Quick story, um, my daughter now is 27 and lives in New York, but when she used to live with us, um, obviously growing up, she went to a high school where I had to go pick her up every day, and, or her mother did. And so um, we, we, uh, we would drive to a school school had an atrium about the size of this room. Well, my daughter said one day, because I'd have to walk in that atrium and actually tell an official that I was taking Elizabeth. They wouldn't let, obviously it was for security reasons. They wouldn't let uh, anybody just take the child. My daughter turned to me one day in the car and she said, dad, you know what? A lot of times when you walk in that room, a boy is talking to me. And she said many times, uh, that boy will suddenly, and this was her phrase, gentle up when you walk in the room. Now he's, he's, I, I'm talking to the boy and I can see you come in the room over his shoulder. And she said, uh, and, and she said, uh, of course she wouldn't let anybody talk nasty to her. That wasn't what was going on. She said, I'm just talking to a boy. She said, in one case, the boy, when you walked in the room, just took a step back. She said, in another case, the boy actually messed up and called me, ma'am, <laughs> same age, teenage boy. <laughs> I said, well, honey, what do you think that is? She just looked at me real slyly and said, Momfasa was in the house. <laughs> now, I'm not, claim, I'm not claiming any big, bad spiritual authority, but I prayed for this woman, this little girl before she was even conceived. I laid hands on her mama's tummy, I prayed for her. I have disciplined her. I have met her dates at the door, cleaning my gun. You understand what I'm saying? I have, I have dis- spanked her. I've taught her history. I have, you know, just everything, taught her money. I mean, I, my daughter's 27 and living in New York. I still have dreams that are guiding, guiding dreams for her. I'll call her and say, I had a dream the other day. Just keep something in mind. Kind of, you know, I'm, more, I'm a little bit less authoritative now that she's 27. But of course I have authority for her life. She's in my field. She's my daughter. And until some man takes her, please God, off my hands, I'm just playing. <laughs> um, I'm just saying, you know, that, that I'm, I'm her father. Of course I have authority. I don't need little boys to back up, and call her ma'am, but at least it shows the authority that you have. How did I get there? I'm not a perfect man, but, but basically I tend my field and she's in my field and I have authority for my field. Would, imagine what it'd be like if we raised a generation with that kind of fathering. And I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm saying that's what we need to restore. Okay. So tend your field. Um, I'm going to tell a quick story I don't have many sports stories, mine are all negative, but really quickly to tell you about tending the field. I gotta watch my time and I'm sorry that I do. Maybe we'll schedule something back when I can come back for more time. But. Um I played high school football and I had grown up as a military brat in Europe. So in the middle of, after my sophomore year before my junior year, I came back to the United States and I went to a high school in Des Moines, Iowa that was massive, it had 4,000 students. That high school to this day has a quarter mile long hallway. That's, I'm not exaggerating, that's a fact. So I started playing football. They put me at defensive end because I was big and a little fast And, um, and I didn't play all that well. So I'm about to show you the ugliest picture of a, of a, whoops, let me see if I can back this thing up here. Oh, went too far. Here we go. Let's see if that just plays. Here we go. Um, you're about to see the ugliest picture of a, of a, of a guy from the seventies ever. Okay. Um, see, isn't that awesome? That's what I look like. No, no, no. No rubbing your head like it's, like it's a painful thing to look at. Don't be doing that. <laughs> my coach got mad at me, told me some things about my birth I didn't know, and, uh, <laughs> and said, you meet me here at 6 o'clock on Monday morning on the football field. So I got dressed up in my pads, went down. I thought he was going to just work me out. Instead, he showed up, met me with a little pair of scissors, like the little kind of kids used to use, you know, like the little rubber finger things. He said, I don't need you to be in pads. He said, you don't know how to protect your field. That's why you stink at defensive end. They were talking about containing the play and stringing stuff out. I didn't know what they were talking about. He said, this is your field. I want you to learn it. I want you to love it. I want you to protect it. Nobody comes through here without your permission. He said, every every morning until you start playing well, you're gonna mow this field and you're gonna use these. Uh, uh. So there I am, October, Iowa, cold, on my hands and knees, cutting the grass. Okay. And I lost my mind. I started to name the grass. Um, I started to make roads. I mean, I'm out there alone for an hour every morning. Right. I started, we started to have elections. We, you know what I'm talking about? We just, uh, you know, but, but his point was still good. What he wanted me to do was own my field. And since the, the, the field where I was mowing was the same thing as the field where we practiced, I started playing better because I didn't want the running back to step on Herman. You understand that Herman and I had been spending the morning together, right? I didn't want the running back to step on Herman. And I had very carefully crafted a, f- a train station over here of my own making. And so don't step on, don't, don't step on my, the Mansfield train station over here in the grass. I know it sounds weird, but I started playing better just because I understood the concept of protecting my field. And a couple of years later, I, you know, got some awards for playing defensive end, which is a miracle, but it all had to do with learning to man your field. Most men don't know how to man their fields. Most men don't know how to tend their fields. And that's one of the things we got to help them to do. It's not condemning. It's not a list of duties. It's not like I get up every morning with my list of honeydews. It's about, I have the privilege of this field In my field. Yes, it's my wife and my children and whatever I own. And yeah, it's also about taking care of my body. And it's also about being with a band of brothers. And by the way, it's also about men knowing how to have have the fun they need, the controlled rowdiness they need to be real men and to be alive. You understand what I'm saying? All that's in that field too. So it's not just drudgery, right? I'm going to connect with my band of brothers. Animals will be sacrificed. You understand what I'm saying? We're going to eat. We're going to have fun but you've got to tend your field. It's where authority and growth comes from. And as you tend the field for this season of your life, then God eventually will expand that field and give you more reach, political stuff, advancement at work, more responsibility, greater wealth, whatever it is that adds to that field. Okay. Manly men tend their field. Now, one of the things I hate it's when you get into a men's conference, you get with a bunch of men, and somebody starts teaching. Normally, they start giving men a list of things they do, and men go away thinking they got to do it by themselves. I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me. This is very, very important. You cannot perfect manly men, manly, man, uh, righteous manhood in your life alone. You can't do it. You just can't do it. You have got to have a band of brothers. You have got to have a group of men around you who help you, who see you, who love you, but aren't afraid of you. And so... um I love this quote from one of my favorite secular uh, uh, sociologists. She says, a woman simply is. A woman goes through such biological changes that a girl becomes a woman and her emotions change with it. She needs character training and so on. But basically, she becomes a woman through biological changes. But a man must become. It has to be intentional. Masculinity is risky and exclusive, and it's confirmed only by other men. You've got to have other men in your life to coach you into righteous and noble manhood. You you just do. Um, Listen to this little little, uh, clip from the movie Seabiscuit. There are certain movies you're not going to go to heaven unless you've seen, okay? And I'll give you the list later because I want you all to go to heaven. But listen to just the last words in the movie Seabiscuit and, and consider that the horse is symbolic of a great cause and look at what it says about these men who came together and got quote-unquote fixed. You know, everybody thinks we found this broken down horse and fixed him. But we didn't. Help. He fixed us. Every one of us. Well, I guess in a way. We're getting every fifth word. Let me go ahead and switch over. Um, basically what he says, uh, the story of Seabiscuit. How many of you have seen Seabiscuit? A lot of you guys going to hell? I'm sorry about that. I really am. Um, so... So in in Seabiscuit, you've got three or four guys who come together, the jockey, the trainer, the owner, and they've all got problems and they've got brokenness in their lives, but they come together and in the process of supporting and serving this great horse uh, and the cause of this horse, which by the way, was a massive news story in the 1930s, got more press than Hitler uh, in the, in the 1930s, huge champion horse. Um, these guys get better as they help fix each other and as they are committed to this cause. Well, that's, that's sort of the way it's supposed to be um, in, in uh, manhood. And I want to tell you guys something. I don't have a lot of time to get into this in detail, and I, I, we need to do a whole conference on it. But basically, you know, it used to be in your family line back centuries ago, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your nationality, in your family line, um, men lived different lives than you lived, and community was almost built in, Right. Uh, whether it's my Native American ancestors or you're African American or Asian or wherever you're from, a, cent- a century or so ago, they, they grew up in larger families. They had the village or the tribe. They had the extended, you know, white, like, like, like American average white guys on the frontier. They had to build and live in villages. They had to live in townships. They needed the blacksmith. They needed each other. They needed each other for barn raising. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, you had to have tribe. You had to have an extended group of men. Today, the average guy doesn't have that. Today, the average guy, maybe he has good friends in high school, college, maybe in the military, but as he gets married and he has kids and he has a house and he starts getting all busy with the things of, of maybe sort of middle-aged life, I don't mean like 50s, I mean even just in 35 years old, um, he start, the statistics show that he pulls away from other men. Uh, he's busy. He doesn't have a band of brothers. Surveys show that the average man today in America cannot name a best friend. The average man in America today does not know who he would call to go get his son out of jail if he was out of town on a business trip and his son got picked up by by the cops, okay? The average man today, this is the one I like, does not know who in his life he would trust if it was three in the morning and his wife was having a problem at home, you know, the dog ran away or the pipes burst or whatever. Who do you trust to send to your house at three in the morning when your wife's flitting around in her nightie and she's in trouble? Who do you trust to go over there and handle that with character? You follow what I'm saying? The average man says... got nobody. The average man says, I got nobody. And so what's got to happen is we've got to be intentional about building a band of brothers. And I I, I do do an entire conference on this and it's something I'm passionate about. I got to boil it down to just a few minutes. You've got to have a group of men around you who see you, love you, know who you are, can speak into your life and you can speak into their life. You've got to have a group of men around you with whom you have a free fire zone. A free fire zone means everything anything that needs to be said will be said to make us better. In my band of brothers, we, we, we've, we address manners. We address uh, English problems. We address character stuff. I've got a weird band of brothers. Don't mean to be insulting here. I've got great big African-American former NFL guys because I live in D.C. and I hang with the Redskins because they go to our church. You know, you guys know that the church I attend in D.C. has got a lot of the Redskins. We've got a, literally an Asian accountant. I know that's a stereotype, but he is an Asian accountant. Okay, And we've got an Arab restaurant a guy who runs an Arab restaurant where we all eat and steal food all the time. And uh, then we've got just an average, a couple of average white guys like me. And we're very close and we, we love each other dearly, but we hammer each other to make each other better. And it's made all the difference in my life. Quick illustration that I got to move off this. Not long ago, I went to a party and somebody snapped a picture. And later somebody gave me that picture. And I said, who is that? And the guy said, it's you, fool. It was the ugliest picture of a human being I've ever seen in my entire life. Okay. I had a t-shirt stretched over my belly. I had sunk down in a couch that didn't have any springs. I had about 92 Oreos in my mouth, okay? I was halfway through a blink, so I looked drunk. I hadn't had any alcohol at all, but I looked drunk. I, my, my, because I was sunk down, my chin was sunk into my chest. I looked like Jabba the Hutt on a bad day. And, and, uh, and I got to looking at that picture and I thought, if I can look like that on the outside, what can go on on the inside of me that I don't know and can't fix and can't address? I need other men to have eyes on me. I need other men to know who I am and what, I, what I'm about. You see, in the church, what we often do is we have accountability groups. An accountability group is you figure out what's wrong with you, hang on to it for two weeks, drive across town, sit down at the breakfast spot, and tell a bunch of guys so they can pray for you. If you're waiting for me to figure out what's wrong with me and have the courage to tell you in two weeks, we're all going to be dead. you follow what I'm saying? I need people walking closely enough in my life to know what's going on with me. I'm gonna be very graphic here. If I'm taking the second or third look at the backside of the waitress, I want my guys to know and ask me what's going on at home because I have a loving wife, a beautiful loving wife, and there should be no problem me wanting anybody or just checking out some stranger. Um, I don't know what you guys think about alcohol. I'm not trying to push it. My wife's a gourmet cook. We have a glass of wine or two for dinner at night. But if I had a bottle of wine or two bottles of wine, I want guys close enough to me to know that I'm abusing something that's that's otherwise a privilege. If I've gained 50 pounds, believe me, my NFL guys are going to go, what's up with you, tubby? You know I mean? They're just going to be right in my face. I need for them to be close enough. I need for them to hear the bitter cell phone call with my wife. And know that something's wrong without me having to tell them. If I have to narrate my life to you, then you, then, I, then I can filter what you know about me. I need for you to walk closely to me to know my life. And I know your life. These guys have changed me, and I've, we've been able to help them. And I mean, it's just it's just fantastic. Every man, listen to me now, every man in this room, no matter what your age, you've got to have a group of men with whom you have fun and you love each other and you care about each other, but you will say whatever needs to be said and coach each other to be better. We cannot do it alone. If you're, if you, I hope you guys know that the male suicide rate is skyrocketing. In England, if you are over 50 and you didn't, and you die and you didn't die of a heart attack, you died of suicide. And when we do the psychological postmortem on the suicide, you know what we find out? That most men, men are killing themselves because they're lonely. The suicide note says, I don't, there's not another man in my life who knows me or cares about me. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. It's what's causing men to be addicted. It's what's causing men to be unhealthy. And that's why I say we are the police. Look around. We are the police. All right, let's move on from that, although I'd like to talk about it all day. Manly men live to the glory of God. This is not just a little religious thing I throw in here at the end. Uh, Manly men live to the glory of God. I I take a different approach than a lot of guys who speak to men um, because I am not telling you I want you to be noble and great men primarily for your wife and children. I know it sounds terrible. I'm not anti-wife and I'm not anti-children. I want you to do it because of what you're made for. I want you to do it because I want you to live for the glory of God. I want you to live in relationship with God. Then you present yourself, so to speak, to your wife and your children and you and, and as as the good and the noble and the and the righteous man that you're made to be. Okay? I want you to be noble in that sense. I want you to feel the pleasure of God. I want you to live to the glory of God. I love my wife, whose name is Beverly. Some of you know who she is, a very famous writer and producer, songwriter and producer. She's written for Clapton and and Minskill and Amy Grant, and some of you, you know, I walked in, you know who she was. Once you meet her, you won't care about me anymore. Um, But she, she's fantastic. My kids are lovely. I'm just, I'm just a blessed man. My point is I don't want to be a righteous man primarily for them because quite frankly, for us men, that's where a lot of bitterness and resentment can come in. Really? I got to fix myself for my wife. Well, is she going to fix herself for me? You know, it gets to be that kind of tug of war. I want you to be noble and righteous men because God's called you to be. Okay. So in Galatians 1:10, Paul says, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to be a servant of Christ. I want you to be a man. I want you to be the man you're called to be and be that first for the Lord. And then be the great husband, be the great father, be the great friend, be the great church member, be the great leader in the community you're meant to be. Okay, one more movie, gotta do it. Gotta, Chariots of Fire is the movie you will not go to heaven without. Okay, I'm just telling you. So this is Eric Little. Most of you have seen this movie. How many of you have seen this movie? I'm sorry some of you guys are gonna burn. I really am, it's bad. I'm just playing. movie about a famous runner from the 1924 Olympics, but he says something to his sister that's really important. Listen up.
1: Jenny. Jenny, you've got
0: to understand.
1: I believe that God made me for a purpose. For China. But he also made me fast.
0: And when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. I want an hour to preach five days straight on that line alone, okay? But I want you to run with God. I want you to run in noble manhood and feel his pleasure, okay? So manly men live to the glory of God. That's where the power comes from. God has the ability, no matter what you've been through, to heal you. Some of you, I'm not making light of it, may have been sexually abused. Some of you may not have had a father in the home. Some of you have been criticized as men. Some of you have had deep, deep wounds. God can heal that stuff and restore righteous manhood in you. Some of you had the opposite thing. You had a kind of a weird, perverse, hyper-masculinity taught in your life. I've got friends whose dads took them off to the whorehouse on their 16th birthday because that was what manhood was in their generation. Um, God can restore and clean all that and make you the man you're called to be. Now, uh, here are the... I'm not going to tell the story of Taylor. I'll tell it another time. But here are the four maxims. I want you to take a look at those. Make sure you've got them written down. Um... It's in the book, but I'm not here to sell books. I think you know that. And let's take a moment and just ponder this. I'm going to have to walk out in a minute, leave you to your pastor and the other guys who help process this at a table level. But you have any questions or anything you want to process with me? Because these four things are really, really critical. Do we need to get a mic to people who are asking questions or just let them ask questions? Yeah, let's see if I can do that. Did I go too far? I'll just do it manually. Sure. I'll leave that up while we talk. Any questions? Anything you want to discuss before I sneak out here? Yes. Do we need to have them have a mic? Uh, It doesn't matter to me. It's cool. Thank you. Scott Dolly.
1: So one of the terms floating around here lately is toxic masculinity. Can you speak to that and kind of help define what, what you think that is?
0: Yeah. Toxic masculinity is for the most part in our world, the very kind of masculinity that we would all uh, decry, we would all speak down to, we, w- we would all reject. Uh, it's the abuse of masculinity. You know, on college and university campuses today, 20% of women are sexually abused. 20% of women on college and university campuses are sexually abused. Well, that's a result of toxic masculinity because it's, it's 99% women, men who are abusing women. It's a kind of masculinity that, that doesn't have any principles. There's a time of ma- kind of masculinity that says, sees women as sexual targets. It's a kind of masculinity that sees itself as privileged without obligation. You, you follow what I'm saying? Uh, it's the kind of masculinity that you know that, that mis- mistreats people and has no sense of ethics. A man is given his strength. Uh, you know, the, almost every man in this room is stronger and better ca- and more capable physically than 99.9% of the women on the planet. So if we all turn into a bunch of raping, marauding barbarians. We can rape and pillage and destroy almost every woman in the world. Why would God give us that kind of strength? To protect, to make safe, to make noble. Do you see what I'm saying? So when the world's talking about toxic masculinity, it's talking about masculinity run amok without without any ethics, without any morals. It's talking about men using their strengths and their abilities um, to to take and to damage and to, and to steal from. Um, so women raped... Handled, molested on college and university campuses where smart people ought to be, to the tune of twenty percent. Why does that happen? Largely because of a kind of masculinity that is unprincipled, that thinks with, it, with its with its penis, uh, and that and that doesn't care about what it does to other people. That's that's the toxic masculinity. So so even though I don't agree with every last word that's said by somebody in the Me Too movement, you understand what I'm saying. I certainly believe. That if women have been molested, if they've been raped, if they've been dominated, if in Hollywood they've been inquired to do nasty things to get jobs and all that kind of stuff, we're opposed to that as Christians. But the problem is the world thinks that all masculinity, some people in the university campus, they think that all masculinity is toxic. Because they don't have the alternative that we know exists, which is noble, righteous manhood. I am a man. I head my house. I love my children, my wife. I live out noble manhood. I pray over everything in my field. I pray for it to, be, to thrive. And if I could stop a rape, if I walk up on a man raping a woman, that man's going to hurt. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, that's what noble manhood does. Speaks words, tends, is generous, is righteous. Your kids at home ought to have your positive, godly, righteous, destiny-oriented words living in their soul, not angry, angry bitter, harsh, you're so stupid, you'll never accomplish anything kind of stuff. You follow what I'm saying? Just being in the home is a start. So toxic masculinity, in short, is the kind of masculinity that the world is attacking because it thinks that all, that's all that masculinity is anymore. We've got to rise up as righteous men and show them what true masculinity is so they have a model of something else. Okay, another question. Do you have one? Sure.
1: I'm not sure exactly like how to formulate it, but... Um so there are other people that obviously have different worldviews yeah. in Christianity. And I know that some of my former co-workers have dealt with even similar issues of yeah. isolating themselves or putting themselves in terrible situations. Um, how can we basically not just like override them and say like, look, it's because you know, you're not a Christian, but more so influence them in a way to,
0: to show them what manhood looks like. Right. It's actually, guys, a little bit of a complex question, but I love it. Uh, it's actually, guys, a great time to be speaking about a righteous biblical vision for manhood because it's what the world wants. I do a lot in the Muslim world, and I'll tell you that, that the version of manhood in much of the Muslim world is very perverse. It's very domineering. It's very harsh. Um, sexual abuse is sanctioned. Um, men having sex with little boys is sanctioned in Quranic in literature. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know as well as I do that women are much abused in that part of the world. So to hold up the Christian model of a, of a man who's strong but serving... I mean, Ephesians 5, serve your wives as Christ serves the church and wash her by the water of the word. You follow what I'm saying? That's what the world's looking for. A lot of these angry women that you might be in, be tempted to call names when you see them on TV screaming against men, they've just never seen what you are trying to become. They've just never seen what we are. They've only seen harsh and bitter men. I've, I've talked to women and, on the campus and they'll just talk about, they'll be mad, they'll be screaming at me. And before the conversation's over, I'm talking about in public, they'll admit that they were raped by their fathers. Well, if the only thing they know is that they were raped by a guy who was kind of a bubba, I'm in charge and everybody in the house serves me, they don't know anything about servant manhood in the image of Jesus. I want you guys to be the strongest, most awesome men. I want you to have fun. I want you to be alive as men, but I want you to serve and build up. I want your kids strong and champions. I want your wife beautiful and noble and feeling like I'm loved by a man and I'm protected. You know what I'm saying. I want when women walk in this church, I want them to go, I'm surrounded by righteous men. I am not being threatened, I am being protected. I've told my wife who she should or that she should, if if anything goes wrong, if I flip out or if I die or something happens to me overseas, she calls the band of brothers. And we've had a couple of episodes, not of any kind of negative between us, but where I'm overseas and she can't find me, she pushes the button. She calls my band of brothers. They are at the house. They are calling the State Department. They're making sure she's got groceries. They're protecting her. And I would trust them without question. Imagine what that would mean in a community of godly, of godly women. So it's a great time to talk about this. Most of, and this sounds terrible, most of non-Christian religions have an extremely flawed view of manhood. And Christianity can have a flawed view of manhood too, if it's all about domination and barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen and all that kind of stuff. But I think we see that scripture is different about those things, and we just haven't been living it out. So I'm, I'm in favor of restoring what's lost. Let's do one more question, and I'm so sorry I've got to go. Yes, sir. Just stand up, yeah. Let's get you a mic so they can have it recorded, and if we need to sue you, we'll have evidence. <laughs> just playing. Thank you. My name is Blesson. Sorry. I'm sorry. That was me. So sorry.
1: My question is, are we postponing the manhood for current generation? Because we are calling 1820 as kids. So they behave like kids. I I teach in a college. I, I get undergrad students who behave like kids. So as a society, are we at fault that we are not giving them apt responsibilities at the right time? Even when they are in college, we just treat them as kid and they become yes, like a kid. Yes,
0: no question, no question. Uh, the fact is the age of uh, adulthood, the age of maturity is moving later and later uh, chronologically. But the question I have is whose fault is that? I'm not about blaming, uh, pressing fault. You guys know I could come here and yell and scream about how bad we are as men and we'll all feel bad and we'll leave but we won't be changed. In my home, my wife was all about nurturing and protecting the kids. It was my job as a man to say, that's great, I'm glad you have a nice home, I'm glad you have great things. Mow the yard. Let me teach you how to mow the yard. That's now your responsibility. Uh, Yeah, maybe you'll get a car one day. In the meantime, clean mine. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm making it humorous. But it's the man's responsibility to assure the development of character. It's the man's responsibility to assure the development of skills. And if you have an overmothered and underfathered culture, what are you going to have? You're going to have kids who are nurtured and who are cared for uh, and who are loved and made to feel like the center of the universe, but you're not going to have kids who have a sense of duty and calling and responsibility. Um, real quickly, um, psychologically, we know that women represent a certain thing to God and men represent, a, I'm sorry, represent a certain thing about God and men represent a certain thing about God to children. Uh, When a child uh, hurts themselves on the playground, what do they do? They run to mom and she loves them. And, oh, I'm so sorry. And she puts that nasty medicine on the skid and their knee, you know. I love you. She's the warm center. She sends the signal that God exists, right? What do we men do? We throw them, bounce them off the ceiling. We spin them around like crazy people. And, you know, that look in the kid's eye when you're playing with your children, you know, it's like, this is awesome, but I could die. You know, that kind of thing, you know. And so... So, but what do we send? God, God is, God is, uh, terrifying, but he's good. You know what I mean? It's it's like the line from, uh, from the line, the witch in the wardrobe Is, is, is he, uh, is he safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. You know? So kids learn to trust God in difficult and extreme situations. So if there's a father in the home and he's a Christian father, kids are like, look, I can go through tough things, but God will still be there. See? So they, so they learn discipline. They learn duties. They learn to push the boundaries. They learn to trust God. They learn to step out into adventures. And what's happening is, again, I, I'm not blaming women. I'm saying because of the breakdown of the home and the absence of fathers, we have overmothered mothered and an unfa- under-fathered generation. What that does is it pushes the age of responsibility, of duty, of accepting maturity and responsibility even later. See? So I think you're absolutely right. I'm actually watching. In their tw- Some kids aren't hitting until their 20s. What was pushed on my generation? I'm I'm in my 50s. In my when I was 12 and 13 and 14, so you're exactly right. It is delayed. May the Lord make you guys the awesome men you dream of being, and our generation needs. It's a privilege to be with you. Love you guys. Can we give Stephen? (laughs) Yeah.